Lord, help us today as we begin our time uh, in this incredible letter, Lord, that you, uh, that you have breathed out through your servant Paul to the, the church in Thessalonica. May we see, Lord, this as an opportunity for us to, to learn afresh, uh, to, to get into the, the heartbeat, not only of the church in Thessalonica, but also in, into the heartbeat of Paul. And Lord, the, the kind of things that he was concerned about, what, what he knew and how he wanted to shape these people. And Lord, allow us to be teachable. Allow us to be uh, moldable, Lord, and, and moving, Lord, to becoming more and more like uh, your son, Jesus Christ. And allow me to be your, your mouthpiece, to simply reflect through uh, this time of preaching your truth to the hearts of your people. Would you be glorified? And Lord, would hearts be changed? We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, in a, in a culture where drones are becoming more and more commonplace, uh, someone was talking to me about yesterday about, you know, now it, uh, when people are selling homes, they send up drones above the house to take pictures and all this kind of stuff so you can get different perspectives on the house. It's all new, it's fresh, um, and it's incredible. Um, and there's a sense in which today what we want to do is take up a kind of a, a teaching drone and look above the text uh, and, and kind of think through where this all begins and how Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonian church really by looking at the history of the church as well as considering um, what God has been doing from the beginning to the end. And what we're actually going to do is we're going to begin with the end in mind. And so I want to invite you now to go to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5 and verse 23 and 24. This is at the end of the letter. And you'll actually need to keep your hands both in, in Acts 17 because we're going to get back there and in 1 Thessalonians. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 23 and 24, this is what we find Paul saying as he's closing out this letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. At the end of this letter, Paul is praying a prayer for the Thessalonian church, but he's also reminding them of God's faithfulness. What God has started, he will surely complete. And when God starts raising people up in a city where there is no gospel presence, he continues to minister, and he will be faithful to finish what he has started. That's what he's saying there in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider it as, as kind of like the big picture backdrop of what's going on here is this, the faithfulness of God in calling his church. Now, what does that faithfulness look like? And I, I, I have four points or really four areas of discovery. I'll just rattle some things off. These aren't what go in the blanks, all right? But, but this is the idea. We're going to look at, uh, at the proclamation of the gospel. And God is faithful in that. There's this, the receiving then of that gospel we find there in Acts 17. There's this strengthening in the gospel that we find that comes through the actual letter to the Thessalonians. And then even the text we just read, there is this hope in the gospel, which of course is the prospect of the Lord's return. It is the prospect of heaven. In fact, there's a number of things that we sang about this morning that really flow right out of the themes of these texts that we're gonna be walking through this morning. So there's a sense in which we're doing a flyover, but in this flyover, we don't just wanna kinda of generalize things, we do wanna take time to think through what God is teaching us in the record of his word. So let's begin with what I'm calling, first of all, a divine proclamation. A divine proclamation. In verse one of First Thessalonians, we find here a greeting. And if we're honest, friends, when we begin a book like 1 Thessalonians and we come to the greeting, we usually want to get through it. 
We usually say, we'll leave the greetings and the details and the greetings to those who are the theologians, those who are the pastors, but we want to get to the good stuff. And I just want to remind you of something, and that is that there's a reason why this greeting is here, that Paul is purposeful in crafting these greetings to the people that he's writing to because there is a relationship that he has with them. And so we don't want to just blow by them. And let's just read it one more time and just kind of get a sense of what it is that he's saying in this greeting. So this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So what does this greeting tell us about the content of this letter? Well, first of all, I think we can say that this is a letter that is authored by Paul, but it is not just from Paul. It is from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, because all three of them were present at the beginning and the nurturing of the Thessalonian church. So Paul may be the author, but he is greeting them in the sense representing the other two. So who is Paul? Of course, we know Paul as the Apostle Paul, who once persecuted Christians, but God gloriously called him to himself on the road to Damascus. He has these two companions, Silvanus, also known as Silas, and then, of course, there's Timothy, who would eventually be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But Timothy were, uh, say, Timothy and Silas were more than simply traveling companions. They were part of this ministry team that went and planted this church in Thessalonica. So, this is a letter that's authored by Paul, but it is also from Silvanus and Timothy. Secondly, it tells us that a church exists in Thessalonica. Now, you say, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? But you have to remember there was no church in Thessalonica. All right, you can't just assume during this time that there were churches over there. There weren't. There wasn't a church in Thessalonica. That's why Paul comes into Thessalonica, and he comes with the gospel. And it tells us that something radical has happened, and as a result, God planted this church. And it says a church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the church exists because of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, planted into the hearts of individuals who believe. They have been called out by God. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. That's what the word means. And God calls them out of the darkness into light by means of the gospel. Certainly Paul went and, and Silvanus and Timothy went and they preached the gospel. But get this, it is God who was doing the calling. They were simply the agents, but it is God who is actually planting this church. All right? Now read, read chapter, chapter 1 and verse 4 and see how clear Paul is on this. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has what? He has chosen you. Right, this is God at work in the lives of these people. So as a result, they are in God and Christ. Now Jesus talks about abiding in the vine, which would be himself. He also talks about the need for the, the, the church to function with all the different parts of the body. In other words, they're all connected together. So the church is, is living in, it is rooted in, it is drawing its life from God and from Christ. So that is what he's presenting. This church exists. This incredible um, uh, um, birthing of a church because of God has taken place in Thessalonica. It's, it's a wonderful reality. It's an incredible dynamic. Thirdly, what we learn from this little greeting is this. It tells us something about the heart and the relationship that these men had with the Thessalonian believers. Now, how you greet someone does kind of indicate your relationship with them, Right? I mean, there are some people that I greet in the morning when we come to church, and I greet them with a hug. There are some of you that we do a handshake thing. There's some of you we do the, the bump, right? 
And there are some, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you do the nod thing, right? You know, I mean, the, how you greet does communicate some things about your relationship with people. I remember, um, you know, there's, there's some different ways, and we find this even in this book, but there's actually other ways that people greet each other. Physically, you go to some cultures, and, and they kiss. Wernickes, you guys ready for that? Right? I mean, they're going to France, right? And they're going to be, you know, they're going to be hurting their noses trying to figure out this whole back and forth thing, right? Um, there, there's this greeting that takes place that's very, very physical. Like I said, there's handshakes, there's hugs, there's smiles. But there's also verbal greetings that we have kind of been accustomed to. You know, hey, what's up? What's going on? Hey, dude. Um, uh, hey, bro. I have a pastor friend up in... Uh, um, Pleasant Hill, and he, he, I mean, he might as well just have a surfboard with him the whole time. Just the way he talks, you know, it's bro and dude and, you know, but he's, he's a great guy, solid. Um, growing up in England, uh, the, the, the expression was whatcha, you know, so say, whatcha George? And he would say, whatcha Rod? And it's short for whatcha doing, but it was just, it just became a greeting, you know. Um, when I moved to California, I learned this one. Peace, dude. Peace, right? It's helpful when you're driving, I've learned, you know? Someone you know, cuts you off or you cut them off. It's like, peace, you know? They're not at peace, but, you know, you're given the peace. It's, you know, it's, it's a greeting thing. Now, we, we use these greetings to be, be, because we're in a context. Now, friends, don't, don't miss this. And this is what I'm saying. We blow by this. There is something deep and necessary about these two words that are used here. When he says here, grace to you and peace, there's, there's depth of richness about those things. He's, he's communicating a desire that grace would abound on these people. And as a result of that grace, that there would be peace. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean be physical peace. He's talking about the result of the gospel in someone's heart, that there is peace with God, and that peace continues in the heart of that church and in the lives of the people that are part of that church. Now, friends, when you look at this verse, you're reminded that gospel ministry isn't just about one key leader. I know we give a lot of accolades, like for Paul and for Peter, as key apostles, but hear this, Paul didn't function alone here. He had a team, and he might have been the leader of that team, but they functioned together as a team of people taking the, the, the gospel to this place. And the reality is, friends, even our church, Gateway Bible Church, is not about one man. It's not about me. It's about us. It's about a team of people working together with the gospel. Now, we all have our roles. We all have our functions. And there may be leadership that, that is taking place. But there is a team dynamic. There must be a team dynamic because God never meant for it to be a one-man show. And if it ever becomes a one-man show, then we're really heading down a wrong path. All right? So there's this team dynamic that's really, really important. And here you have Paul and his two apprentices and even now, uh, now that they've left uh, Thessalonica and they're actually in Corinth um, a little over a year later, they're still together, even though they went apart for a little bit. They're still a unified front. They're still a team united together for ministry. So now the question is, how did it all start? How did this church begin in Thessalonica? And so we move from a divine proclamation to a radical salvation. A radical salvation. And I have a, a map that I'm going to put up here in just a minute. But uh, I want you to think, first of all, uh, that, that these were three men who were missionaries. And they were sent on a divine mission. And it all begins in Acts 15. So we're going to spend the next few minutes in the book of Acts, 15, 16, and 17 in particular. I want to encourage you to turn there and just kind of follow along as I might make some notations. But what we have here is Paul's second missionary journey. And it begins in the book of Acts. And Barnabas and Mark, they go off to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas with him, and he heads to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And they come to a place called Lystra. 
So look up at the screen here. You can hopefully see this. Try and work. Here we go. All right. So um, here, here they come. They're, they, they're in Antioch. This is where they're at. And they're going to go up into this particular area. But they come up to Lystra. And when they get to Lystra, um, they are introduced to a young man by the name of Timothy. And he is uh, a young man who has a great reputation in that town as well as in that region as being godly and as a, as a young man who is serving the Lord. And so Paul uh, invited him uh, to come along with him on this particular journey. Now, uh, Timothy is the, the son of a, of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. Okay? And Timothy, this, this young believer, like I said, was well spoken of. And so now, you had two, but now you have three, Paul, Silas, and Timothy going on. Now, what was, what was the mission? What was the mission? Well, the mission was twofold, bringing the decrees of the elders from Jerusalem to the churches that had been planted on that first missionary journey, and secondly, to encourage and strengthen the churches. So let's go look at that, um, let's go look at that map again, and I just want to point out here, the first missionary journey took place in, in this region right here, okay? So just in the Galatia uh, kind of region, maybe a little bit, a little further along there. And the goal then for Paul on the second missionary journey was to go and to strengthen and to encourage the churches. That's what they went out to do. In fact, you can read the, the, the summary in uh, Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. Luke summarizes it this way. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So as they went, as they began this journey, as they ministered, ministry was going well. And, and the churches were being strengthened, and people were being added to the church. So that's a good thing, all right? And this is what happens, though. God, God has his plans, and we have our plans. And what we have here, then, is what we call the Macedonian call. So all is going well for Paul and the others, but God had these other plans, plans that they had not considered, plans that would take them a completely different direction, and they still tried to follow their own plans to visit the region of Bithynia. You can see Bithynia up on the map there. Um, well, actually, you can't see it. it would, hold on, buttons. Bithynia is actually up in this area, okay? And they uh, ended up being hindered by the Holy Spirit. So we want to pick up at Acts chapter 16 and verses 7 through 10, because here we have the Macedonian call. So just follow along as I read these verses, beginning at verse 7 of Acts chapter 16. And when they had come, to, come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, um, excuse me, a vision appeared to Paul at night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here with the Macedonian call, but here's the thing, guys. We may, even by prayer and purpose and wisdom, discern a path that God wants us to walk and set out on a journey only to find out that on that journey, God has other plans for us, okay? And sometimes what we, what we determined ahead of time was the plan is not what God ultimately intended, and that's why it's called a journey. That's why things change. And this is an example of how God can take you to one place only to move you to another place. But he didn't move you in a straight line to that other place. He wanted to take you through that other place before you get to that place. Now, the ways of God are always, you know, often, I should say, mysterious, but he will move in his way according to his purposes. And that's what's going on here. So there's this Macedonian call. Now these are the churches that, that they, or places they went and where they planted some churches. Notice up on the top side here. So Macedonia is this whole area. And friends, this was, this was un... Um, well, this is a place where the gospel had not gone yet. So they were down here and God was calling them to, to Macedonia. And so they went to... Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Bria, and then ultimately Athens, Corinth, 
and then down back to Ephesus, and they would eventually come all the way down here, and then back to Antioch. And, and the places that we have recorded in the book of Acts where they have churches are Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and of course back there in Antioch. And the whole journey took about three years or so. Um, and the Thessalonian church was a little, was earlier on in that journey. Now, I just um, noted in our last point that ministry takes teamwork, but I want you to also note that we have an example of here of how the Godhead works as a trinity. Now, I just want to put some things together. 1 Thessalonians 1.1 tells us that the church was in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And now here in the book of Acts in chapter 16, who is it that's hindering Paul in his movement in a particular direction? It's the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just saying, you, you want to be mindful of the fact that God does work with teams of people working together but behind all of that, and, and more important than teamwork, is the fact that there is a team. It's the triune God who is at work behind any ministry endeavor. All right? And we see that kind of in, in the background, kind of God doing his thing. He's opening and closing doors like we heard in the prayer. There's moving the hearts of people. There's working in ways that we cannot see. And this is what God was doing with this Macedonian call. Now, let's just kind of think through then. All right, so this is, this is where they went on their second missionary journey, but ultimately we want to focus in on Thessalonica, what happened in Thessalonica. And so that's where we move to this ministry in Thessalonica. And I want to just take a few moments here just to talk about the city briefly. I, I think there's some things that are worth noting here. It was founded in 315 B.C. by Cassander, um, who named it after his wife, a half-sister of Alexander the Great, uh, a number of years later, um, for, uh, 146 BC, it became the capital of Macedonia. It was the second largest city in that territory, the largest one being Philippi. Um, and then in 42 BC, it became a free city. In other words, it had its own separate independent government. Now, its location is really important. It was situated at the head of uh, the, the, the Thermaic Gulf, it was a commercially strategic position. It had a fine harbor, and it served as seaport for the rich agricultural plains of Macedonia. You can just, again, look up there uh, on the map, and you can see where Thessalonia, Thessalonica is. You can see how it would be a, a, a very handy seaport um, and ended up being a very, very important um, seaport and harbor. It was a city that had many foreigners, and where multiple regions were practiced. Now, in short, it was a city that was strategically located, affluent, multicultural, and a port city. Can you think of any region near us that might be strategically located, affluent, multicultural, and a port city? Anyone have any ideas? No, so there's a lot of similarities to what we're facing here. And there's unique dynamics that take place in a context uh, like we live. So friends, let's consider um, this personally. When God started Gateway in 2011, we recognized that this particular area needed a church that was, uh, was gospel-centered and would be unashamed about the preaching of the gospel and the, the unpacking of the word of God systematically and faithfully. Those are some of the core dynamics that we were really wrestling with. And to that end, God raised up a church to glorify him that would be a community of believers who were actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now why? Uh, one of the reasons why is because this is the mission field. There, there are organizations that kind of do demographic studies to find out, you know, what's going on in particular areas of the world and what does the mission field look like. Let me tell you something. The Bay Area is the mission field. You don't get much more multicultural than here. I mean, this is where you run into all sorts of people from all sorts of different places. Now, you and I are used to this. 
If you've grown up here, this is what you just rub shoulders with people from all different walks of life and cultures. We're just used to this. But you, you move out of the Bay Area, you go to other places in the United States, and you're just like, they have no idea what multiculturalism is. I mean, we're just so used to it. You know, so this is a, an incredible place, and God has placed us here, friends, for a reason. You are part of that reason. I am part of that reason. Those sitting next to you are part of that reason. And there are those whom you have not met yet that are also part of that reason. The God, uh, God desires to raise up churches in a context like this that are committed to the gospel and to, are committed to the, the proclamation of his word and the training and raising up of people in the gospel and in the word of God. And so to be sure, God is at work in this. And we must do all we can with the gifts that God has given us to serve one another and to be a, a gospel presence where he's placed us. But it is God who is at work in and through us to do his good pleasure. It's always God who's working through his servants. He is always the one that we need to praise and glorify. We are simply the, the agents that he uses to accomplish his purposes. So that's a little bit about, about the city uh, as far as its, its location and its makeup. But now we want to think about the actual gospel coming to the Thessalon, Thessalonian uh, people. And by the way, if you kind of go Thessalonian every once in a while, that's okay, because I'm going to say it a lot, and um, I just want you to feel good, okay? So if I, if I do that. Um, so let's think, first of all, Chapter um, Acts 17, and, and let's begin reading at verse 1. I want to focus in here on the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. I want you to notice as we read here Paul's three-pronged strategy um, that he uses. And again, this is typical of how Paul spoke from city to city. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what is Paul's strategy. Now, I just want to pause here and just say this. One of the things when you're reading uh, narrative is you want to you make a distinction between what's called descriptive and prescriptive. In other words, descriptive simply says this is what happened. And, and if we make what, what we see happen something prescriptive, um, then we, we end up coming up with an idea or a doctrine or a truth that we think is always going to be the case. For example, you know, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. You know, what happened there? Well, they got the people and they marched around it and they marched around it, what, you know, seven times and actually ended up being 13 times because in one day they marched around it seven times. So this is how you make decisions. This is how you, how you conquer. You march around, you know. No, that's just how God chose in that particular situation to deal with the situation at hand. But what we have here, if you notice in the text, it says in verse 2, and Paul went in as was his what? His custom. So in other words, this was a pattern. And you actually see the pattern, but you note in the text here, we're told this is a pattern. This is how he went in and began to share the gospel. And he would go to a synagogue, so he'd go to a Jewish presence, and he would go in there and three things that he did. Number one, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And the idea here is that he, he dialogued. There was an exchange of questions and answers that took place. Secondly, he explained the scriptures. He literally opened up the scriptures. He unpacked the scriptures. He, he opened their eyes so they could see. Kind of like what Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. When he, he, he told them how... The Messiah was foretold in the Old Testament in so many different places. And third, he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Now, friends, to a Jewish ear, that runs contrary to what they have been taught and what they believed. They did not believe that the Messiah should suffer. They believed that the Messiah was going to come and conquer. But what they didn't understand is that the conquering comes by way of suffering. 
Even today, Jews reject Isaiah 53 as a picture of the Messiah. They see it as a picture of Israel. Okay? So they, they cannot comprehend a suffering Messiah. But here, what he's doing is he's proving from the scriptures, after he's explained it, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, friends, the message of Christ is still the same today. Paul's methodology um, is still something that we can use and follow. Now, I realize in in today's culture, people do attempt to use different kind of like strategies to reach people. And I put that in quotes, to reach people. What do we mean by that? Certainly in some contexts, maybe some missions contexts, we do have to take into consideration the culture the, the, the context in which the, the hearers are going to be, maybe some re, a religion that they have been embracing and think, how do I then bring the gospel to bear in that particular context? How do I communicate it faithfully? But what you'll notice that as Paul goes to different places, although he might be skillful in bringing different cultural aspects into the argument, he's always going back to scripture to say, It is the scriptures that say this is the Christ. It is the scriptures that say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. It is the scriptures that say that you must repent and believe. So there's this methodology always comes back to this core reality that this is the gospel. So this, this reaching people does not mean you soften the gospel. It means you're just careful about how then you're going about to communicate the gospel into that context so that people will hear. And so we, in a post-Christian culture, can seek to understand the different worldviews of many kinds of people, especially in a, in a multicultural context like we are today. We need to think about that. We need to think about where people are coming from, what they hear, and what they understand. I mean, you talk to your average Muslim person, and you bring up the church. You know what they think. You bring up Christianity. They're they're thinking Catholic church. They're thinking buildings. They're thinking bowing down to idols. They don't understand evangelicalism. They don't understand what the, the kind of church that we are. That is not what they understand the church to be. That is not how they view us. And so you have to kind of say, well, wait a second. No, we've got we to come at this a little differently to share the truth of the gospel. Ultimately, though, we go back to the word of God and we point them there and say, this is where it is revealed. And this is what Paul does. He takes them to the word, he shows them the word, he explains the word, and he proves his case from the word. So there's the preaching of the gospel. It, was, it, it brought clarity and it was compelling. Secondly, notice the power of the gospel, the conviction and the conversion that took place. So what happened when the gospel was preached in the synagogue? It says in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So you have these three groups. You have many Jews. You have these devout or God-fearing Greeks who believe. Let me explain who those are. Those are Greeks who had converted to Judaism, who are now ministering or living and fellowshipping and worshiping in the synagogue. And then you have these leading women, and and probably the best way to understand that is that these leading women were Greeks, were part of the Greeks who were God-fearing, but they uniquely were women now who believed who were in positions of, of leadership in that particular region, in that particular culture. And this is what the church plant in Thessalonica looked like. Some believing Jews, some Greeks, and these leading ladies. Now, who would have thought that such a radical change would come to the people of Thessalonica? I mean, we read this and we're like, yeah, this is great. You know, God's spreading his church. But just on, on a human level, you're walking into a city that is pagan, and you walk into a synagogue because you are a Jew and you're, you're able to kind of walk in there and you, you can have a platform, you can speak, you begin to uh, open up the word of God and start asking questions and then people are sitting there saying, well, that sounds really interesting, so you explain it some more and then you finally begin to, to prove from that text that, that the Christ must suffer and wow, I haven't heard that before, that's new, wow, this is incredible, I see what you're saying and all this is taking place, but who would have thought that such a radical change would come to the people of Thessalonica? But if you remember, just before Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in Thessalonica, where were they? They were in Philippi. And what happened when they went to Philippi? Well, Paul did the same thing. 
and people believed. Lydia, a merchant woman, believed. They were thrown into jail, and the jailer was converted and his family. And in, in Philippi, God testifies through this servant girl who was possessed by a devil. Now, the point here is this. They had already experienced in Philippi some radical things that God was doing, some affirmations, even some, some difficulties before them, but God had carried them through. So not going to Thessalonica, it's like, okay, God, what are you going to do now? They're not surprised that God's at work. They're just faithfully going into the context and doing what God has called them to do. And friends, it's a reminder to us that salvation comes to the most unlikely people and often in the most unlikely ways. And so when Paul, Silas, and Timothy enter into Thessalonica, they were on the heels of God's powerful work. They had a message that God was at work. I remember um, ministering in a place called Kirovichapetsk, Russia. The church was about five years old. And so it was, it was a really young church. But the church had started because there was a believer in that town that sent a, a letter to Slavic Gospel Association and said, would you please send us a pastor? So um, they sent them, a, a, a pastor was sent, his name was Anatoly. He went to Kirochepetsk. And Kirochepetsk was a city that was uh, a hidden city in, in Russia, okay? In other words, it wasn't on the map because they had this big chemical plant there and they didn't want to put it on the map. They didn't want people to know that it exists. And so he goes there and he starts preaching the gospel and having this Bible study with this particular believer and God started to birth a church, okay? Within five years, there's over 500 people now attending this church. And I, as a, as a young man, going to help train now these guys, not only is it a, is it a, a, a church that's growing fast, but they are sending out missionaries because they're going from this central church now and they're wanting to have churches in the villages and towns around Kirovchepetsk. You see how that goes. So they had these guys that they were training and I went over to be a part of, of the training of, of those guys and get to see it firsthand of what was going on. I tell you what, there was, a, there was a, a ministry buzz happening there. They were just thrilled about what God was doing. It's incredible. Now, friends, they were passionate, they were eager, they, they had the gospel, they wanted people to know about it, and this was what was going on. And so it, that kind of stuff compels us to ask ourselves, why don't we open up our mouths and share the gospel? Why is it that we get settled with what we're doing, and, and we just kind of like, well, you know, maybe if, you know, after a few years they ask me, you know, well, what's all this church thing about, I might say something, or, you know. As opposed to saying, you know what, God, you, you are going to do this. I am the agent. You are the one who is stirring hearts. You are the one who is working in people. Help me to be that person that is willing to open my mouth and, and to testify and, and just to, to be the vehicle that will, will communicate the gospel to these people. So here is this gospel. And the gospel not only was preached, but the gospel was, was powerful in that it it. it uh, convince people and, and they were persuaded and they were converted and now a church is birthed. But of course when a church is birthed, what happens? There's a persecution because of the gospel. Now of course in the text you understand this. Here's the reaction and it was persecution. Verse 5 but the Jews were jealous. Well why would they be jealous? Because they were losing people. People were leaving the synagogue and they were going into this new church. And so they were taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And then when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the, uh, the brothers before the city authorities. And the point here is this. There's this, there's this persecution that happens. And after they leave, Paul, Silas, and Timothy then um, leave the city, and they end up going to a place called Berea. And the, the, the persecution didn't stop. That angry mob kept on going down the road to Berea and sought them out there. And so they actually had to leave Berea and continue on their journey. And eventually they go to Athens, and then they go to Corinth, and it is in Corinth that the letter to the Thessalonian church is written. 
So here's, here's just the backdrop. Here's the history. Here's how it all started. And it was all kind of, you know, really fast-paced. They weren't there that long. I know it says in the text that he was there just for, for three Sabbaths. That was probably talking about how he initially came in, and for three Sabbaths he, he preached the gospel from the text. People believed, and as they're believing, then they're also con- continuing to teach and to train and to raise up. So they were probably there about, you know, four to four to five months or so, but still, that's not a long, long time. But then they have to leave quickly, all of a sudden, because of the persecution. So now, we get to what I'm calling a growing satisfaction, a growing satisfaction. Oh, sorry, growing sanctification, not satisfaction. We've seen the birth, we've seen the backdrop of, of, the, of, of, of this church coming to be. And I just wanna just mention three things about this letter that might help you now as you begin to kind of put things together. As we've seen the history, now you can see some of the content and why it's there. First of all, this is a very pastoral letter. The tone is encouraging. The words are full of affection and commendation. Now remember, Paul, Silas, and Timothy hadn't spent much time there. They shared the gospel. They taught the gospel. They left. But consider the following words from this letter. In chapter one, where, where there, Paul says to them, you became imitators of us. You became examples to the believers in that area. That you have a reputation of being word-centered and faith-driven. I mean, in other words, this church not only was planted, but this church was doing the work. I mean, they were growing. They were an example to those around them. But also note how Paul describes his affection for them. Notice chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 17 and following. He says, but since we were torn away from you. Just catch that. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. In other words, we, wa- we wanted to be with you, but we had to leave, but we want to see you again. Because we wanted to come to you, I, I Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? My friends, those are words of affection. Those are words that are saying, You are our joy. You are our crown. We rejoice that we have this relationship with you. For you are our glory and joy. Now keep reading chapter 3 and verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is Paul, the pastor, who loves the flock, who cares for this church. Now friends, I just, just honestly, I, I've, I've had the privilege just as a pastor to, to, to visit many places around the world and, and visit different churches. I remember Grace Church in Kurovichapetsk, which I mentioned, and just the affection I have for the people there. And then there's the, 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 the house of prayer in Ufa, um, which is another place in, in Russia. Then there's the reconciliation and salvation churches in Ukraine. And then there's the Bible Baptist Church in Santa Cruz. Those are just a, those are just a few. My point here is this. When you, when you fellowship with people, when you've ministered with people in other places around the world, your heart longs to see them again. Your heart desires to learn how they're doing. You want to pray about their well-being. You want, to, you want to rejoice with them when things are happening. You want to know how to pray for them when they're going through difficult times. And this is what Paul is going through. This is a church, not just that he went and planted. This is a church that he loved. And friends, this is a pastoral letter. Secondly, it's an instructional letter. A little bit here then about the structure of this letter. Primarily the first three chapters are Paul looking back and reflecting on the kind of church that the Thessalonian church is. And chapter three primarily is him talking about sending Timothy and the report that he gets back 
from Timothy. So it's this reflection. Chapters four and five are Paul's instruction. In, in, in chapter four, he talks about how we are to walk and to please God, as well as to give them instruction about those who were asleep, meaning those who had died already, um, and what was going on with them. There was some confusion as to what happened to people like that. In chapter five, to give clarity about the events surrounding the Lord's return and how to behave then ultimately as a church. So there's definitely instruction there, but this is pastoral instruction. This is heartfelt instruction. This is instruction because I love you and I care about you. Imagine, you know, writing to your child at college or picking up the phone and talking to them or emailing them. You're, you, you can just pass information or you can actually give heartfelt counsel and instruction for things that they may be facing. It's that kind of thing. This is a, this is a, a father speaking to his children. <laughs> he's a pastor. He's a shepherd. But it's also a motivational letter. It's a motivational letter. And here's what I mean by that. Paul uses a threefold perspective about our life as believers to encourage us to press on. Uh, certainly, he, he talks about being fueled by the power of the gospel. That's how uh, we ultimately are saved. Um, and so that, that gospel continues to push us on. We are sustained by the presence of God, having received that gospel. But we're also anchored by the prospect of heaven. And it's that last one that really is the the the... the the driving theme of this book. Notice at the end of each of the chapter, chapters, Paul makes reference to the Lord's return. And I'll put up the references there, and, and you can follow along if you want as I read them. But 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For what is our, our, our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Chapter 3, verse 13, So that he might establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then finally, chapter 5 and verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so what he's calling us to do, friends, is to think about life as the church with the prospect and the certainty of the Lord's return. You know, a number of years ago when I was living in Michigan, we would take our vacations to California. This is where we would come. And we would come out, and usually what would happen, this is when the kids were younger, Elia would come, well, I would come with her, spend a couple of weeks, she would stay for another two weeks, and I would go back to Michigan because I had a job, right? And I had to get back to work. Um, so uh, one time, we were, that was the plan, and the plan was then I would go back to Michigan, and I was going to paint the living room and the hallway of the house, which is a good idea because you don't have rugrats running around putting their hands on all the wet paint, right? So I go home, they're here in California, and I'm thinking, all right, I know I have two weeks to do this, and so I map things out, you know, I take a couple of days to, to fix the walls and then to sand them down, I take another couple of days to make sure everything's primed and ready to go, and then I finally get the paint out and, you know, get, get the, a few, you know, layers of paint on there. But the whole time I'm thinking, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And I want to make sure that I have that reality in mind to push me along, to motivate me to get the job done. And see, friends, we, are often, we often talk about being motivated by the gospel. It is the gospel that we are to live out of, right? 
And certainly we are, we are encouraged and strengthened and sustained by the, the present activity of God in our lives. But, but here, Paul brings out the motivation of the prospect of heaven as being a motivation for us. We want to work in light of his coming. And so we could summarize it this way. God's children, God is calling his children to live their lives for his glory in light of the Lord's return. Or as I say it really simply, living in light of his return. That is really ultimately what this book is about. Living in light of his return. So those are three kind of top end themes that we're going to see that would help us understand this book. Let's just finish up briefly here with what I'm calling a promise glorification. And we're going back to where we started. We're going back to this 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 passage. And I just want you to notice what Paul does in his prayer here because I think it's really helpful for us. He prays that the God of peace would finish his work in them, all right, that he would sanctify you completely. Friends, God is not done with you yet. He is still at work and we need to be praying that God would continue to sanctify you and us until he comes again. Secondly, he prays for God's protection of his children until Jesus returns. And friends, that's important. Not only do we want to grow in our sanctification, not only do we want to become more and more like Jesus, we are also praying for God's protection. And that isn't just physical that is a spiritual protection. Others, we're not caught off guard by some false teaching that is influencing our thinking. And finally, he reminds them of God's faithfulness to his children. And just take that on a personal level. You're growing in Christ, protected by Christ, but he is committed and faithful to you because he, is, he has birthed you he has given you new life. And Paul is just praying and encouraging them to, to live with these things in mind. And friends, over the course of the next uh, three months, we're going to be wrestling with this book. And it's a lot of great stuff. There's some stuff in here that's hard-hitting. There's some stuff in here that's encouraging. There's some stuff that's like, oh, this might answer some questions that I have. But this is is given to us so that we can live our lives in such a way that we have the prospect and the certainty of heaven in mind. And how are we going to live in light of that reality for his glory? And let us seek to do that together. Lord, help us today to consider your truth, to ponder, Lord, over the things that we've heard today. This has been a time to kind of get a big picture, Lord, of what it is that you have done with the Thessalonian church, and Lord, there's so much more to say, but Lord, I ask that you would help us to take the things that we have gone over here today and allow them to, to, to give a, a backdrop to this, this wonderful letter that you have breathed out through your apostle Paul. May we, uh, may we see, Lord, what you're doing in our hearts as we study this book. May we see what you're doing at Gateway. May we fashion and shape our ministry and our thinking and our hearts, Lord, based on your truth coming from your word. And uh, Lord, we want to give you all the praise and glory now. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness to us in your name. Amen.